Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. There's been a lot of fallout following the nine newspapers' revelations over the way Home Affairs Secretary Mike Pizzullo was allegedly seeking to influence politics and Liberal Party leadership machinations through key power broker Scott Briggs. Encrypted messages suggest Pizzullo was advocating for more right-wing influence in the then-government, including in the Home Affairs portfolio, and pushing for a clampdown on press freedoms, among other things. Bernard Keane is politics editor over at Crikey, and to talk Talk all this through. He joins me now on the line. Hey, Bernard, great to have you back on Triple R. Good to be here. So, I mean, there have been questions raised for some time over the potential politicisation of the public service with a turnover of department heads happening with a change of government. I suppose in, in that broader context, how surprised were you at the nature of Pizzullo's alleged behaviour in this case? Well, we've seen a lot of politicisation of the public service in recent years. It's It's reached a a relative high point. We've certainly seen politicisation of public service in pre- under previous governments uh, of both sides, but um, uh, it was particularly strident under Tony Abbott and Scott Morrison, much less so under Malcolm Turnbull. I think Malcolm Turnbull, was, as a Prime Minister, was actually very relaxed about the public service and, and, and saw them as having much more expertise than perhaps a lot of his colleagues did. But the politicisation really got very bad under, under Scott Morrison. But this is a very different and, I guess, new kind of politicisation that we've, we've seen exposed by um, Nick McKenzie and, and Michael Bachelard at, the, at Nine Newspapers in the context of a very clear agenda by the head of the Home Affairs Department to uh, you know, cultivate, curry favour, um, engage with, you know, whatever term you might like to use, a senior partisan um, power broker, and to you know, step over, I think, quite a few boundaries um, in the way that he did that. You know, one of the one of the key boundaries being that public servants don't get involved in in political stuff. Um, it's one of the core rules of the public service that you leave the politics to the politicians and to their staff, and you go on with, with providing uh, policy advice and trying to work out how to do what they want you to do. But um, uh, it seems that for Mike Pizzullo, uh, he was very keen to actually participate in the kind of political games that were going on uh, at various stages under the coalition, including, as you said in your intro, um, uh, the Liberal leadership contest in 2018. He was... Uh, throwing in his uh, two cents worth uh, in relation to not merely the overall outcome of that contest, but what kind of ministers might end up coming to his portfolio, which is um, uh, you know a real um, you know a real step over the line. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I mean, I suppose in an ideal world, you know, we'd want the best possible people to be in these positions of power, heading up government departments in the like, and, and, and feel, you know, able to provide frank and fearless advice about particular policy issues. And, and we, you know, we don't like to see a change in in roles or the people heading up those departments just with a change of government because, you know, they put their favourite people in there. But, you know, in this respect, given what's been revealed about, um, you know, Pizzullo's efforts to kind of involve himself, I suppose, in, in Liberal Party politics. What do you make with the fact that he, he has, or well, had until this point at least, uh, kept his job under the Labor government? 
I think it suggests a pretty... Labor arrived in power with a commitment to basically keep the secretaries that it inherited from, uh, from the previous government, partly as a signal, I guess, that it was not going to engage in the kind of um, uh, wide-scale sacking of public servants that the coalition's well-known for. So the last couple of times that the coalitions got elected, back in '96 and uh, in 2013, they've come in and they've knifed a whole lot of uh, senior public servants, basically not because they were incompetent, not because they uh, represented some sort of problem, but basically because they were perceived as having worked too closely and too diligently for um, uh, Labor when it was in government. And uh, Labor, the, you know, the, the two times it's been elected in recent years, came in and basically said, we're not going to do that, we're going to basically try and keep things running. And they've kept on senior public servants who absolutely worked very closely and arguably too closely with um, uh, with uh, with uh, previous governments, just as a sign that uh, they're not going to engage in that sort of, uh, uh, you know, almost petty partisan um, sort of... Uh, uh, slashing of the public service. So that's that was, I think, one one of the key things on Anthony Albanese's agenda when he got elected was keep the public service uh, as it was, and move forward from that and and reshape the public service um, from there. Uh, Labor did have a, well, does have a an agenda to try to reform the public service to try to bring it back to what it used to be, which is you know a an independent or relatively independent um, uh, public service with a high level of expertise, a public service that's capable of actually responding to the challenges that it's that it's uh, been given. Um, and that's not been the public service we've had in recent years. There's been you know, incident after incident after incident, which has revealed that the overall level of competence in the public service is declining. And a lot of those, unfortunately, have been in Mike Pizzullo's portfolio of home affairs. So... Mm. Uh, I think the Mike Pizzullo standing aside, as he did last week in the wake of uh, these stories, I think does give the government the opportunity not merely to uh, overhaul that portfolio, but to maybe think hard about... um, uh, about the kind of public service that it wants. Yeah, and there's, of course, an inquiry underway into whether Pizzullo breached the public service code of conduct uh, you know, as a result of this investigation from Mackenzie and Bachelard. So, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll await the results of that. But as soon as, as this broke, my mind went to, OK, well, how do we view past decisions and inquiries and, and um, conduct, I suppose, of, of home affairs in light of these kinds of revelations? And, and you've kind of taken a, a bit of a path in that direction, writing for Crikey, you particularly highlight the case of Bernard Clary and his attempted, or you know, until the charges were dropped, um, prosecution over his handling of sensitive information about Australia's spying on the East Timorese government. Explain how this story relates to Bernard Clary's case. Well, Mike Pizzullo is, first of all, he's ardently, passionately against leakers. Uh, we know that because he's, he's told us so. He, he said he thinks leakers should be jailed. Uh, he was very upset when a new, she was then at News Corp, Annika Smethurst, revealed um, that he was encouraging uh, the Defence Signals Intelligence Service to be deployed against Australian citizens, which it's not currently allowed to, allowed to be. And uh, he was outraged by that and wanted, uh, wanted the party, who, you know, the party responsible for that story, um, uh, to be put in jail. 
And he was also a key witness against uh, Bernard Caleri, not in terms of the prosecution itself, which, of course, was in relation to uh, revealing the bugging of the East Timorese uh, cabinet, but in relation to the efforts by the Attorney-General, who was then Christian Porter, to make that trial as secret as possible, to you to make the evidence in using that trial against Bernard Caleri secret and to prevent Bernard Caleri from re- revealing key aspects of, of, of you know, what had gone on as part of his defence. So on the one hand, we've got a man who has made very clear that he supports secrecy, that he opposes um, uh, the media providing some sort of transparency about what's going on within our national security institutions, Uh, a man who was very happy to appear as a witness to argue for the need for um, keeping secret even the prosecution of someone who had revealed uh, uh, allegedly confidential material. Uh, And on the other hand, we now we know that this man was actually engaging in sharing information, sharing confidential documents um, with... um, uh, uh, not even journalists, but um, a Liberal Party power broker, i.e. a big contrast between what Mike Bazzullo apparently said uh, and what he apparently did. And, you know, when you get that in relation to national security, uh, you know, it th- does put a big question mark over the way that we go about national security and the way that we've structured our laws, because our laws really do rely on the idea that we have national security bureaucrats who are committed to the national interest and will abide by the law themselves and you know again i think we've been left with some pretty big questions in the wake of what we found out about what mike bazzullo has been doing absolutely speaking with bernard Keane, politics editor at crikey all about the ongoing fallout following uh, michael bachelard and nick mckenzie's investigation into mike bazzullo and how he was seeking to have influence in liberal party politics and a number of other areas as well and i'm interested in your kind of thoughts on the way that sort of journalists are implicated in this too in some of the text messages, uh, people who leak or provide journalists with information that are referred to as handlers, handlers, I should say, almost like this is a, you know, an admission that they're just being manipulated by particular people who want to, you know, advance their own agenda or advance certain policies that might align with a particular ideological stance. Do you have any thoughts on the role of journalists kind of in this story and particularly, I suppose, in light of the AFP raids on Annika Smethurst as well? The, uh, look, Mike, Mike Pizzullo has made clear for a long while that he, he basically sees uh, journalists dividing into two camps. On the one hand, there are the bottom feeders, uh, the people who pose a threat, the people who would reveal information that shouldn't be revealed, that I, you know, basically do the wrong thing. And then there are the people that he calls the respected national security journalists, uh, the people who can be turned, the people who, uh, you know, will sensibly work with government figures in order to uh, protect uh, national security information and to provide a narrative that the government uh, and that people like him think uh, is appropriate. Um, so on the one hand, you've got what I've called Pizzullo's pets. On the other hand, you've got real journalists, people like Annika Smithhurst, who believe that uh, it's important to have transparency and as much transparency as possible into what's going on in our national security space. And it's pretty, it's pretty clear, having watched a lot of national security re- reporting over uh, many years now, that Mike Bazzullo, and not just Mike Bazzullo, but plenty of other senior figures within the national security establishment, whether they're the people who run ASIS or ASIO or uh, other key intelligence figures, 
really do have, uh, you know, deeply embedded relations with um, members of the press gallery, with um, the people who um, uh, report on national security information, and there's a clear quid pro quo uh, at work in which um, they are given access to confidential information in exchange for telling the line, in exchange for telling the line that the national security establishment would like them to provide. And that's not real journalism. That's um, basically mm. you're acting as an unpaid media advisor to uh, to national security bureaucrats, and that's not any sort of way to, uh, to conduct yourself. Um, Australia, much more so than any other country in the Five Eyes network, really does not have an independent, a tradition of independent scrutiny of and reporting of what's going on in our intelligence agencies and our national security agencies. The United States, in contrast, has a very, very strong system of public debate about what's going on in intelligence and security. Uh, it doesn't have enough, but it's got far more than we do. And part of that's down to people like Mike Pizzullo, who uh, see journalists as enemies or people to be manipulated and controlled. Yeah, and the only way we found out about, well, this case and things around, uh, you know, the, the actions of some special forces soldiers in Afghanistan is through those acts of very dogged investigative journalism and very brave whistleblowers as well. It's been great having your thoughts on Triple R this morning, Bernard. I really appreciate your time and hope to chat again soon. No worries. Triple R. House of Skulls is a new podcast out through Audible, uncovering the secrets behind the mysterious Morton Cranial Collection housed in the basement of the University of Pennsylvania Museum. Across six episodes, it investigates how human remains ended up in this prestigious university and dives into their histories, including that of an Australian convict and cannibal, Alexander Pierce, as well as members of a black liberation group in Philadelphia who were killed by police in 1985. It's an expansive and illuminating production that presents new insights into the legacy and impact of racism in America and elsewhere. To tell us more, I'm joined by Walkley Award-winning journalist and documentary maker and podcasting extraordinaire Mark Fennell, who serves as our tour guide to the House of Skulls. Mark, great to have you on Triple R. So episode one introduces us to the Morton Cranial Collection and you describe skulls literally lining the walls of a classroom. Can you kind of just set the scene for us? What is this collection of skulls? Well, it was put together over a period of years and it actually goes back right into the history of that museum, uh, of that of that university, uh, the University of Pennsylvania. And I think part of it was that it was put together with an intention. It was put together by a man who who really wanted to prove a theory. And he wanted to prove a theory that you and I and everyone else around were actually not the same race, or actually multiple different races. And he sort of was trying to categorise us uh, by the, the, the size of your skull. It was this idea that the size of your skull could dictate your intelligence. And that was that was kind of at the root of it. The, the issue, I guess, in some ways is why did they still have it? And also, how did it get there in the first place? And so I remember, for me, the, the starting position was uh, I had this very strange conversation a couple of years ago in, in like the deepest, darkest of lockdowns. I was talking to a retired priest and he he kind of casually, and I'd never heard of this before, and he kind of casually mentioned to me that uh, that he got a call from America saying, hey, we've got the, the skull of a, of, a, of a Catholic cannibal from Tasmania. What do you think we should do with it? And, and, it, and I was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, there's a whole... 
classroom, as you say, lined wall to wall with human skulls in America. And I'm like, again, sorry, what? Lockdowns were weird, but this was just very new information to me at the time. And I immediately, as soon as he said that, I immediately sort of got sucked into this vortex. So that was 2021 when I when I first heard about it. And, I, and I've spent basically a large part of the last couple of years trying, A, to work out how they all got there, but also there's this other side to it, which is, I guess, the humanity, which is that... Once skulls are taken from uh, and put in these collections, they, they almost stop being people and they start being specimens. And it, and it struck me that there was a lot of dehumanisation that came from this collection of skulls. It was used to inform science and medicine and all these other things. And I guess part of the goal we had with the series is like, well, if you could return some humanity and, and, and try and tell the stories of these people... How would you begin to do that? And it was actually a lot more complicated than I thought it would be. Yeah, and it's fascinating that someone sort of came to you with the story of this skull and said, you know what, you know, I'm going to chat to Mark for now. He'll know what to do with it. Um, <laughs> well, he didn't actually, to be honest with you, he said it in part, well, I was interviewing about something else entirely, and he just said it in passing. And I just went, sorry, what? And it's a weird thing that happens to me sometimes now, particularly after making sort of documentaries and podcasts like this. Occasionally somebody will say something and they, you when somebody comes in and says, I've got a story, often it's not a story. When somebody's casually talking about something else and they randomly drop in this fact, that's when I go, hello, what is this weird information? And I think it was more like that. Yeah, that's the gold. And, I mean, you've explored similar-ish stories for your podcast and television show stuff, The British Stole. I mean, what is it about museum collections and <laughs> artefacts that lends itself so well to audio storytelling? Why is it that I've become the bait of museums and galleries all around the world? Is that what you <laughs> That's my real question, yeah. <laughs> it was an accident. I didn't mean to. Um, look, I there's a few things. One, I, I think museum, uh, firstly, it's accidental. It, didn't, it was not a plan. I did not set out to do this. I do think museums and galleries are... This is the people assume I don't like them because of stuff the British stole and, and this. I, I don't. I love I love stepping into those places. But to me, they are boxes filled with mysteries. And they only have about 80 words. In most cases, museums and galleries only have about 80 words to put on, on a plaque. And that's not their fault. But what they choose to put on those plaques is often very incomplete. Sometimes for totally innocent reasons and sometimes because there's a desire to actually just make history polite. And I think the one thing I have realised over making stuff like the House of Skulls or even stuff the British style is that there is, there's a polite, we have a habit in English speaking worlds to want to make history seem polite, to want to make it seem sort of like easily digestible. And in most cases, history isn't polite. It's actually really bloody and horrific. And I understand the impulse to want to make it polite, but actually when you do that, what you're doing is a disservice to the victims in most cases. And I think the the House's Goals is a really, I mean, it, there's, it's a sort of a reaction to two things. One, as soon as we put out Stuff the British Stole, I immediately got people going, why are you picking on the British? They weren't the only ones that stole things. So congratulations, House of Skulls might as well be called Stuff the Americans Stole. You're welcome. <laughs> but I also, think, I, I also think it's a bit of a reaction to the fact that these things, when you put them in museums and galleries, they they become static, right? They just sit, sit there on a wall and you look at them. And if there's nice lighting, that's great. And that's a tourist attraction. And that's also great. But actually what you have to kind of push for is that next step of like, okay, well, when they put this collection together, what was the intention? Like, what were they planning on doing? with? And actually when you dig into that story, you realise there's ramifications from this collection that reach right out into the presence. The guy that put this collection together, his thoughts went on to influence 
slavery and medical uh, medical science and and even you know perceptions of like who you want to date and things like that the the tendrils of this collection whilst they it, whilst it seems like this weird ephemeral thing that sits in a basement in America that has nothing to do with our lives the tendrils of that reach out into the present in really bizarre and strange ways and part of the the thing i love about i guess particularly podcasting and particularly the doing this with audible where it's sort of novelistic and it can kind of travel over multiple episodes is that you actually can follow the tendrils and you can kind of go on that journey and go hold on this is not as simple as it seems this actually is a much more complicated story uh, and it's filled with great characters. I met amazing people putting this together. And I love the way you weave together all those different stories as well. I mean, we mentioned the Australian cannibal Alexander Pierce, and he's the focus of one of the episodes. And I mean, this is really interesting for the way that we, you know, have incredibly racist understandings of who, who cannibals are and who cannibals have been throughout time as well. Tell us about Alexander Pierce. Well, Alexander Pierce. Uh, had a very sad life, actually, to be honest. I mean, he was a young Irish kid in a time who was where the, the Irish were not particularly well looked well upon in in the United Kingdom. Uh, he committed multiple crimes and ended up, ended up being sent at uh, a fairly young age to uh, what we now call Tasmania. And Tasmania as a penal colony was pretty bad. <laughs> you know, it was pretty bad for an, for a number of reasons, but but as a penal colony, it was pretty bad. And he tries to escape. He actually tries to escape multiple times. And there is obviously a uh, they made a they made a number of really bad decisions when they were trying to escape from the penal colony, and at some point the group of people he was escaping with there was a tradition commonly associated with with sailors, which is when the weakest one looks like they're about to go, you kill them and you eat them, and that sort of happened multiple times until he was the last one standing. Then he was recaptured, and nobody really believed him. Then it happened again, and he was uh, and he. He was captured again. And he was actually, the weird part is when he killed and ate the second time around or, or the, on the second trip, he actually had food on him, which made it even weirder. And in some way, eventually he was hung and his head kind of passes around from person to person. And the head itself becomes a celebrity. The head becomes something that people talk about and pass around. And it ends up in America ultimately. And I think what was curious about it was this idea that he becomes a celebrity in death. Because the idea at the time of a white cannibal was so outlandish because actually what had permeated for the longest time is this notion that cannibalism was a brown person thing. It was something that, you know, native tribes do in you know South America and throughout the Caribbean. Now, there is some history, certainly there is some history of, of cannibalism around the world in, in different tribes. But actually what really burnishes it as an idea is Christopher Columbus. Christopher Columbus creates this, this narrative that, um, that people throughout the, the Americas uh, and, and native people were brutal people who, who were cannibalised. And that meant that there was no way they could be saved and turned into Christians, which is why they had to be enslaved. Now, that's a very truncated version of it. There's, there's more to it. But there is a sort of an underlying uh, agenda that sits over the way in which this idea of, of basically brown people as cannibals comes from. And it's not entirely, well, it's based on a lot of lies. And, and that is something that is linked to Christopher Columbus and, of course, the way in which America itself was was ultimately formed, right? And so, again, it's about going, hold on, how do these things connect with each other? And the reason why Alexander Pierce becomes so so famous is because he's the the exception that proves the rule. And that's why there's so much excitement. It's like, oh, a white mm. one. <laughs> you know, so that, and that's why he ends up ultimately being acquired into the collection. And again, it's about kind of forming those connections. 
Absolutely. And, and I, the drawing links between, you know, Christopher Columbus and how that's informed these prejudices that are still um, kind of circulating today is absolutely fascinating. I've got to say, when I was listening to that episode, I was out for a walk and there was a quote, I think, attributed to Pierce um, where he's thought to have said, man's flesh is delicious. It tastes far better than fish or pork. And I thought, if I lose my phone and someone finds that <laughs> note that I've just scribbled down, they're going to be asking questions about me. Um, speaking with Mark Fennell, podcaster, all about his new production, House of Skulls, out through Audible. And I mean, one of the, the most emotionally impactful parts of this series was the story of the move bombing in Philadelphia back in 1985. And, you know, there might be an assumption from a collection such as the Morton Cranial Collection that, you know, these are skulls that were collected a couple of hundred years ago and the like, or, or maybe longer, um, and that it might be even sort of, you know, difficult to repatriate them properly and therefore we can sort of understand why they're, they're kept. That's maybe a fair version. But with this story, I mean, there are remains of teenage girls who were killed in 1985, which is just absolutely startling. Tell us that story. This is the part that blew my mind, right? Because, yes, as you say, this is a collection that was made, you know, over you know, a century ago, right? And the idea that it could have anything newer in it is totally weird. And that's when it – I think that that's probably the moment I, I realised that there was a lot more to this collection than just being, you know, it's a bunch of old things sitting in a museum. Through in, – in the 80s, there was a sort of a black activist group called Move, um, and in a very – it was big news at the time – in a very shocking act, the police literally bombed them. We're talking about a street in Philadelphia. Like, this is a suburban street in Philadelphia that they bombed from the air. It was massive. A lot of the people who were killed were were kids. The investigation, I think, in the long view of history, you'd have to say, was pretty mangled. They had construction equipment and people traipsing over when there should have been forensics. None of that happened to the standard we would expect today. And what, uh, because it was partly a mess and they had real trouble identifying people, remains, they needed to bring in experts to, to kind of look at the remains. And they, through a series of for lack of a better term, through a series of very unfortunate events. The remains end up in the University of Pennsylvania. And once they... And there was so much disarray over how they were um, to be recorded and disagreement over who the remains actually belonged to that they sort of ended up just staying there. Like, they were forgotten to some degree. At least that's the story. Now, the problem is the parents of those girls, they were still alive. They didn't know. They didn't know that the remains of, they thought they'd buried what was left of their girls, but actually their remains are sitting. They spent decades, rather, sitting in a, uh, in a box in a gallery, uh, in a box in a, in a museum. And, and a lot of it is about, um, this is going to sound weird, but like, it's about a sort of institutional inhumanism, right? Now, that's a terrible phrase because it sounds really, like, academic. But when human remains end up in collections in anywhere in the world, you have to do a thing where you stop thinking about them as a person and you start thinking about them as a specimen. And that happens everywhere. It happens with, you know, Egyptian mummified remains. It happens with, you know, body parts in, you know, exhibitions. But I think, and in some ways it's easier for us to do that when they're ancient, right? It's easier for us to move. This is something that happened within my lifetime. Mm. And those remains are still part of a specimen collection. Now, you could argue that science and medicine needs to study this stuff and that's fine, but they didn't need to study this stuff. 
right? There was no reason for it to be kept as long as it was kept. And there was no reason for the parents not to know. And when, of course, this all comes out, and it's not secret, right? Everyone knew, well, not everyone, enough people knew. It wasn't like they were, they were hiding it. It's just the world in which um, the, the parents moved in and the world in which the university operated in were different universes, right? And so it's a lot about kind of connecting those things. And, and when, of course, they, when the community of these girls realise what's going on, all hell breaks loose. And I think it's a, it's an inflection point to go, hold on. These are humans. These are, these are young children. Uh, and, and for some reason they've been forgotten in this collection and there's very real harm that still reaches out from that. So I'm making it sound very like heavy going and, and, uh, and depressing. And like, there's also a lot of, intrigue and fun and surprising twists in in the series as well but at the heart of it it is kind of like it is dealing with bodies right and i think one of the challenges with a show like this is like it's but i think particularly why it makes sense as a podcast as opposed to you know doing it for television is that i kind of want people to confront the humanity of it mm. rather than kind of getting caught up in the ickiness of it like you don't we don't spend too long describing remains and things like that it's more about all right, so these these are body parts, but they were people, and let's do what we can to kind of connect with the people part of it. And that's, I think that's something that audio is probably better suited for than television in some ways. And there are real moments of fun in it, as you allude to as well. I mean, in the first episode, you essentially subject yourself to phrenology, <laughs> someone <laughs> sort of reading your head, which um, which sounds like a, a bizarre experience, but you, the way you deliver that and tell that story is done in a really fun and terrific way as well. Um, I mean, you've just highlighted how there are ongoing impacts for, for people still alive today as a result of, of remains of family members and ancestors being kept in some of these institutions. And we know that's particularly been felt by First Nations communities, you know, from Australia and, and many other parts of the world as well. But you also grapple with the question of whether it's entirely fair to judge people like Morton by today's standards, you know, suggesting they were scientists, they were making new discoveries that didn't have the benefit of all the scientific knowledge and kind of sensitivities, I suppose, that we have today. How did you kind of manage that sort of issue in the podcast and that, that tension, I guess? Well, it, it is hard, right? Because, and then this comes up a lot with, with stuff the British style as well, which is like, how do you judge, like, should we be judging the past or should we, we kind of go, oh, well, look, you know, bad things happened and it was, and it was bad then, but everything's fine now. And I think the trick to it is to kind of look for whose voice was missing, right? I think it's just like a general note for anything journalistic or documentary. It's like, okay, cool. So there's this version of a version of history that we accept is on the plaque. It is what it is. And that was then. And this is now. And oh, well, but then you go, hold on. Who was this stuff taken from? And how did they feel then? And how do their descendants feel now? And who's missing from this story? And that's all it is. It's just going, all right, if we accept that generally speaking, when you do journalism, there's at least two, if not more points of view on what went down. Let's just ask. Let's just ask who else is, uh, is there. Because we do, we do illuminate the, the, the possibility. This guy's just a scientist. He's learning. I mean, he doesn't have 200 years of knowledge that we do. Uh, and, and he got some things wrong, as we are probably getting things wrong now. In 200 years, they'll judge us. But the fact of the matter is, with Morton's collection, there were people at the time. Not just, at, not just victims, people who was having their, their, their bodies snatched in the night. But there were people, other scientists at the time who were going, um, I think this might not be 
proper science. I think this might be a bit nonsense. So there were contemporaries at the time, even then, who were pointing out, you know what, this doesn't make sense. So he's not, like, I think, you know, to it is important to put them in their context back then and not just judge from now. And yeah. even then, it doesn't come up looking great. Um, and yet, at the same time, amazing discoveries have been made from this collection. They've, it is an incredible record of human bodies uh, and how human bodies have changed over the years. And, and there are decisions to be made in the present as to what we do next and what, and, and what you know, Penn, Penn is under new sort of management uh, and they are grappling with this as well. And, you know, we, we talked to the, the head of uh, the museum now and the university and, and they are clearly trying to, to like, they're clearly trying to grapple with this, but it's a difficult situation as any, you know, museum collection that's been put together under dodgy circumstances is uh, the decisions in the present are a constant battle of weighing up. Like what's the historical value of this? What's the damage of this? What can we learn from this? And also how can we get people through the door like that? I mean, let's not pretend that these places need people to visit. Right. And so I think I don't envy museums trying to manage this stuff, but, it is a tricky one and it requires not just looking at it through the present day's lens, but also kind of looking at it through the past and trying to make sense of both of those things. Yeah. And I mean, when you're making a podcast like this, that, you know, I'm sure took a lot of time, it's ambitious in scope. Are you thinking about what you want the listener to take out of it? Like what impact it could have as public media? I think for me, I look for a few things whenever I do anything, whether it's uh, a documentary for television or a podcast, I think I always look for what I call a, a small doorway into a big world. So one clearly identifiable, like one line idea that you can explain to people, either leveraging something they know or they've never heard of before. Um, like with this one, it's really, it's in most cases, it's it's something that most people haven't heard of before. And it's like, making sure that you have something for people to hook into because at the end of the day, there's a mountain of podcasts out there. There's a mountain of media. I'm, you know, competing with the BBC and Netflix and all these other things, right? So what you want is something that people can latch onto that right now in the basement of, of one of America's most prestigious universities, for some reason is a room line, is a, is a collection of human skulls from all around the world. Why is it there? Who did this? See that that's, but I think that's, that's a starting position. What you have to do is that small doorway has to open up to big ideas, right? And I think I tend not to embark upon any series, and I'm usually working on a few things at once. I tend not to embark upon them unless I've got an idea about where is, like, what is it about to show us? And I think it's very, it was very clear early on, you know, it, that just that first afternoon where I spent sort of looking at, at the, the history of the collection, it's like, okay, this this collection was put together for a reason, and that reason is basically to prove racial hierarchy. Mm. And that was kind of enough for me to go, I think there's this kind of will end up telling us something about the world. Now, you have to remain, I guess, sort of live to the possibilities of what that's going to be. Like whenever I, like, you know, I'm working on a few things at the moment, and it's like, I think this is going to be about this. But, you tr but if you're too locked in and you're too concrete with it too early, you end up in all kinds of tying yourself into all kinds of knots being like, oh, I thought it was about this, but it's not about this. So there's, it's sort of about knowing that there's enough there for it to become something more complicated and, and tell you something and illuminate something about the world today, but not being so prescriptive from the outset that you, it has to be this one thing. And for one reason or another, you know, half a dozen people say, you know what, it's not about that. It's actually about this, <laughs> that you're suddenly stuck with this idea. So there's a bit of an art to, to kind of knowing 
being confident that it's going somewhere, but not being so restrictive that it can only be about one thing. And then suddenly you're an ideologue, right? You're, you're kind of pushing one particular agenda. And, you know, as a general note, for the, even though I do make, tend to make shows with somewhat spicy titles, like stuff the British style, I'm pretty, it's not my job to have an opinion. Like it's really not my job to have mm. an opinion. It's my job to kind of lay out the experiences that are put of the people I interview and and the, and the history and kind of guide an audience through it so that there's enough space for them to go, do you know what? fine with this collection or, you know, like uh, I actually have real issues with this. And, and because whenever you're having a, an interview with somebody for anything, be it a, you know, a television show or a podcast like this, there's always at least three people in the room. It's you, the person you're talking to and the listener, and they're the most important person. So it's always about kind of making sure that there's space for the person who's joining you, the person who's listening with you in on that journey um, and making space for their experience as well. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a wonderful listen. Big congratulations on its mark. Um, if you do want to check it out, House of Skulls by Mark Fennell is available to listen to for free on Audible. So you can jump onto that platform, search House of Skulls and hit play. It's been a delight speaking uh, with you this morning. Mark, thanks so much for joining us on Triple R. The pleasure is entirely mine. Thank you so much, buddy. <laughs> Cheers. Triple R. The Melbourne Fringe Festival kicks off this week and it always offers up a rich and diverse program with something for everyone. But we know with these big events that access is not always universal, both for performers and punters. This year, the Fringe Festival is showcasing its radical access program, the commissioning education and artist development stream for deaf and disabled artists. And there's a whole rich array of offerings as part of that. To fill us in on all the details, I'm joined now by writer, disability advocate and Melbourne Fringe's access advisor, Carly Findlay. Hello, Carly. Great to have you on Triple R. Hi, how are you? Yeah, really well, thanks. Um, And so I'm interested when your work with Melbourne Fringe began. Yeah, in 2018 I started. So this is my sixth festival now. Yeah, and and so what's it been working with the festival over that time and, and seeking to, I guess, increase access both for performers and attendees? Yeah, we've seen a huge change, I think, in the, both the number of audience members who are identifying as deaf and disabled, but also the number of performers um, that we've got that are deaf and disabled. We've um, uh, had a 240% increase of deaf and disabled artists this year, which I think goes to show that, you know, deaf and disabled people want to probably more you know, comfortable in speaking about their identity, but also have a lot of trust in Fringe as an organisation, which is really nice to see. Yeah, that's an incredible increase this year. It's remarkable. I mean, what do you put that down to? Is it it that sort of feeling more confident and comfortable putting up a show that that could be on at a festival like Fringe? Yeah, I think so. And I also think that um, people recognise the value in being a part of the disability, deaf and neurodivergent communities, you know, and and there's no shame in identifying as deaf and disabled or if we are. Um, So, yeah, I definitely think it's that. And I think we've probably seen um, maybe uh, increasing representation at the festival as a whole so people see that, oh, I can do this too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we know yeah. that people's lived experiences of, of disability are varied. How have you gone in the many years you've worked with Fringe to try and build in that equality of access for people sort of taking in their very different experiences? 
Yeah, making sure that there's a wide range of types of accessibility has been really important to me. Of course, you know, there's really obvious things like making sure that the venue is wheelchair accessible and making sure guide dogs are welcome um, and having a performance as Auslan interpreted. But there's things like, um, you know, including content warnings in shows, eliminating ableist language from shows, making sure that there's a huge amount of information for people before they're going to see the show so they can make an informed decision about whether they can attend or not. So, for example, if someone is an ambulatory wheelchair user, so if they use a wheelchair and they can walk, they may be able to get up a couple of flights, you know, a couple of steps rather, not mm. a whole flight of stairs. And so having information about the amount of stairs that are at the front of the building could be really helpful to someone. And in your work there, I mean, I imagine a big part of this is also reminding audience members who, who may not, um, you know, be participating, um, kind of, you know, need sort of special access requirements or anything like that, that a big part of it is raising awareness and highlighting, highlighting to people that, you know, participating as someone who's, um, who has a disability or who is deaf doesn't mean that there'll be an actual lesser quality in art itself. I mean, how have you gone trying to remind audience members generally of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when we talk about accessibility, we have to remember that it doesn't just benefit deaf and disabled and neurodivergent people. It benefits parents with prams. It benefits older people who may use mobility aids. It benefits people who, um, you know, just watch videos with captions on in, in the silence. Um, so it's not only a benefit to the disabled community, it's a benefit to everybody. But also I think that... Um, you know, during the pandemic, we really saw that um, Auslan was a normal part of media now, you know, with Auslan being at every press conference. And so that when we are putting on our art shows, I think it's really important for people to see that, yes, Auslan is a part of a performance and, um, you know, relaxed performance is a part of a performance, etc. I always feel like it's unfair to ask anyone who's been involved in programming a festival to talk through any highlights, but are there any particular shows that you'd you'd really like to point out for, for listeners? Yeah, absolutely. I've got a few on my list. So we've got our Radical Access program, which really showcases the creme de la creme of deaf and disabled artists. Um, and we've got uh, Faye and Evie's brand new dance commission um, with Chunky Move. And this show... Um, is called Derelict in an Uncharted Space and it is a Star Trek theme. It's righteous and transgressive. It's a cabaret and it features a cohort of extraordinary dis disabled queer and sex worker artists. Um, we also have um, a biographical multi-form solo performance by Lisa Proud which is co-presented with Arts House. And um, that performance is called I Am Not This Body. I'm really looking forward to seeing that. And we also have, um, you know, we acknowledge that the pandemic isn't over and that many deaf and disabled audiences are not getting out of the house yet. And so we've got a um, heap of digital fringe events on um, still. And we also have some outdoor events too. And that's really important to me because um, so much of the world has gone back to how things were pre-pandemic. But um, I think, when, you know, when we talk about access, we have to talk about access in many forms, as I said before. Absolutely. And, I mean, given that you've been at Fringe throughout that period of, of the pandemic and where we endured lockdowns, um, you know, in yeah. Melbourne and the like, of course, many of us have become accustomed to doing, you know, meetings online and that sort of thing. Has that yeah. changed 
the scope for, I suppose, providing more access through digital means for people who, you know, might not feel safe travelling to a crowded room or, or might have, you know, difficulties getting into the CBD or something to attend a show? Yeah, absolutely. We've got um, Smooth VR, which is made by some disabled artists or disabled artists, and um, that is going to be in person and also online. So there's an opportunity to watch that. And um, I, you know, in talking to the artist Sarah, um, she was saying that she's making it in small parts because of her own disability. You know, she's making it um, a few minutes at a time, for example. And um, she's acknowledged that you know the people will want to watch it from home. I'm booked in to watch that one from home um, because it means I can get a rest too. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think, yeah, definitely. But I really do hope that funding continues um, so that we can make digital art online and that it continues to be a higher quality. I think one thing, you know, for me as an arts worker but also as a writer and I guess sometimes performer, I found it really hard being the talent and also being the producer during lockdown. And so we really need to continue funding, um, you know, as, as a whole um, for the arts industry, funding digital options because it is really hard to do it. Like, you know, you have to learn how to do all the tech stuff and that can be very hard on a performer who might not have those skills. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking with Carly Finlay, the Access Advisor, advisor with Melbourne Fringe, also writer and disability advocate. And I'm, I'm conscious we're having this conversation at a hugely significant time when disability is in the national spotlight, potentially like never before with the findings of the Royal Commission being delivered mm. last week. I mean, there were some 222 recommendations. There's a lot of detail there. But, I mean, what's your response to, to what we, we heard last week? Yeah, I mean, some of the recommendations are going to take you know, 30 more years to implement. And, that you know, we don't have that time. Mm. We need them implemented far sooner. Um, I, I feel like while the general public may, may be shocked to find some of the, you know, some of the findings, or, sorry, they might be shocked to hear some of the findings. They're certainly not new to those of us in the disability community. Um, it is worrying that, you know, we are going to end segregated schools in, you know, 30 years Um we really need a disability ministry, you know, now, I think, um, led by an actually disabled minister. Um, I haven't looked at the whole report. Uh, I've read quite a lot of it, but the executive summary is 356 pages. That's the longest executive summary. It, it is, think. yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's going to take a long time to digest. And I also, yeah, I want to thank you for um, speaking about it in the media because I think it's overall being quite ignored in the media. I, you know, didn't see a lot of coverage from um, mainstream news organisations on Friday. But yeah. seemed to take the priority there. So, um, yeah, I think that. And But I think um, what we really need to keep doing is giving opportunities to disabled people to uh, ensure that we're front of mind. And the arts really does that, you know. Um, oh, and I, I, I delivered a testimony at the Royal Commission last year and one of the things that I said is that we need to increase arts and media participation so that it doesn't just seem like disabled people are in a place over there, you know, othered. Yep. Yeah.
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I'm really conscious as well of, of the, you know, the, the many people that shared their very personal and, and quite difficult stories as part of that Royal Commission as well. And I think it's important that we, we honour those by talking mm. about these issues in the media and trying to kind of keep up momentum where we can. And we know in this country we don't necessarily have a great um, uh, kind of history with following through on recommendations from a Royal Commission, very much hoping that that changes in mm. this case. But I mean, where do you see the, the momentum coming from now that we have the recommendations as you say there's a lot of detail there but do you feel like we're in a place where we could see real change yeah i absolutely do i think particularly that we had um you know two commission two commissioners who were deaf and disabled i think that was a really great thing and i think they will maintain the commitment to change but um, we really need to see things implemented quickly and i guess you know given that the Royal Commission was fought for for so long and it got up. Um, and there's been other things where we've seen quick change. It's possible. Um, but, I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not hopeful. And I know that sounds a bit pessimistic, but <laughs> I think given that people were quite surprised and they're still kind of pushed back around segregated schools and um, the lack of media coverage, I, I would hope for more. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I hope you're wrong, <laughs> Carly. I wouldn't say that to many people, but, um, but you know, hopefully we can, can have some, some rapid change building on the recommendations from that Royal Commission. Um, just to cycle yeah. back to Fringe, I mean, it is kicking yeah. off today, a super exciting time. How can people mm-hmm. find out all the details about the wonderful things that you've mentioned, but also the broader program? Yeah, jump on the internet, go to um, melbournefringe.com.au. We've got um, the filters that can show different accessibility provisions and which show shows by deaf and disabled artists and also the wider program, um, you know, the galas tomorrow night. We've got heaps of free and public art happening as well. You know, you might just stumble across it in the city. There's going to be a giant swing on the steps of the State Library, an awesome. eight-metre-high swing. Um, yeah, come, come on and, and see it. And, you know, if you can't get out of your house, there's the option for digital fringe as well and outdoor events as well. Fantastic. It's been so great having you on the show this morning. All the best and happy fringe. Thank you. You too. (laughs) Bye. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.